0: Well, welcome to Maple Grove and welcome to the Gospel of Matthew, the King and His Kingdom, week number seven. Now, this morning we're going to unpack chapter four, verses 12 through 25, in a conversation that I am calling Follow Me. Someone say, Follow Me. Follow me. Before we go there, I, I want to take a look at a couple of verses found in 2 Corinthians chapter one, which, by the way, was our Bible reading this week in our Bible reading plan. I'm going to send up another text today for you to join in and harass you a little bit. But it's pretty powerful uh, to read the comments uh, people in the church are getting from the Bible is incredible. But, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is talking to the believers in Corinth, telling them that he had gone through some really hard times, that he was suffering hardships, that, that he was actually under great pressure, far beyond his ability to even endure. He didn't even think he would make it through it. In fact, he thought that he might even die. Have you ever been there? Have you ever suffered hardships? Have you ever been under some pressure that was far beyond your ability to endure, that you thought, there's no way I'm even going to make it through this one? If so, you're not the first. And if so, you're not alone. And then Paul writes these words. He has delivered us from such a terrible death, and he will deliver us again. We have put our hope in him. Where's your hope? And when you're going through a hard and difficult time, where do you put your hope? We have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again while you join in helping us by your prayers. Then many, thanks on our, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. Did you see it? You know, even though those believers in Corinth could not be with Paul physically in his struggles, they still played a huge part in Paul's deliverance. Why? That many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. Prayer matters. Prayer can really make a huge difference in the lives of people. Amen? Amen. God loves to answer prayers. God does answer prayers. And this time, I want us to do something as a group of Jesus followers who believe in the power of the mountain moving, sea parting, star breathing, giant slaying, ocean holding, dead raising, prayer answering God. Amen? We're going to pray. And one of the things we're going to pray for right now is can't imagine. I can't imagine, right? You and I don't have much to complain about, do we? Uh, There's people losing their homes, people have died, people have lost everything, Um, and though we cannot be there physically, right, we can pray, amen? Amen. And prayer does make a difference. And so, you know, I I debated how I was going to do this, and I'm going to do it this way, and... If it makes anybody uncomfortable, oh well, sorry. But I think it's just too important, right? And I'm going to ask you guys if you would stand, if you could. If not, if you can't stand, that's fine. And like, I'm not telling you to hold hands or hug or anything like that, you know, but circle up and kind of face each other in a circle, right? So turn around to the people behind you, right? I know y'all can do this, right? Okay? You're a very intelligent group. It doesn't have to be a perfect circle. An oblong works just as fine, right? Okay? And, and, uh, all right, and and so we're going to pray, and and, uh, I'm going to give you guys time to pray silently, and if in your group, I know everybody's so wigged out and uncomfortable, what do we do here, I don't know, It's, it's all good, right? And so there'll be a time of silence, and if anyone in your circle wants to pray out loud, feel free to do so, there's no pressure to do this, but there's a lot of people under great pressure far beyond their ability to endure in Ukraine and in Russia right now, Right? In Poland and all those countries. And maybe even in your circle, some people are facing some difficulties that are far beyond their ability to endure. So let's go to God in prayer knowing that it makes a difference. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just humbly cry out to you this morning, God. We know you are all powerful, all knowing, all present. A God who sees and a God who cares. And God, we just lift up all of the sons and daughters, moms and dads, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, children, Lord, that are suffering right now, Lord. God, I pray that your presence will be felt. God, I, I pray that somehow you could turn this evil into a victory, God. I pray for those who have lost homes and lost loved ones, God. God, I, I pray that Everyone will know that the only sure place, God, to put their hope is in you, that all other ground, God, is sinking sand. God, fill your crane with your, with your presence and power right now, God. God, I just pray that you turn it around. I pray that you turn things around, God. And God, I, I pray that you'll show us ways that we can help. And God, help us not to forget to pray and knowing that prayer makes a difference, God. I know you hurt for all the pain and suffering that's going on right now. It's not how you want things to be. And so, God, we cry out to you. We pray for your mercy and for your healing and for you to comfort the many, the tens of thousands, the millions who need it right now. In Jesus' name, amen. I got to tell you, thank you so much for praying. When I heard people start praying out loud, it was it was absolutely beautiful in this room. Thank you so much. God heard and makes a difference. All right, let's do this. The gospel, Matthew, week number seven. The conversation is called "Follow Me." And before we dive into our text, it's important to point out that there's actually a about a one year time gap between the end of Jesus' temptation. In Matthew chapter 4, and Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. About a year gap. And believe me when I tell you, a lot has happened in that, in that one year. Most is recorded by John in his gospel. In this gap, uh, we see the ministry of John the Baptist. I call him JTB, right? We see the ministry of JTB, and, and we see that powerful statement that he makes. As Jesus' ministry began to become more and more prominent, some of John's disciples were a little upset. And John made that statement that he must become greater and I must become less. In this gap, we see Jesus' first miracle, turning water into wine. In this gap, we see Jesus going into the temple and overturning the tables, clearing out all the money changers. In this gap, we see the early Judean ministry of Jesus, healing, teaching, and, his, and baptizing. In this gap, we see the powerful encounter that Jesus had with Nicodemus, telling him that you need to be born again, born of water and spirit to enter the kingdom. And then we see John the Baptist being arrested. Remember why he was arrested? Because he called out the sexual sin that King Herod was committing with his brother's wife. See, not only did he not condone it, he had the courage to call it out publicly. And listen, it's always dangerous to take a public stand against immorality. And his stand would not only lead to his arrest, but ultimately to his death, because those committing the evil wanted to silence his voice. But well, listen, God's voice cannot be silenced. In the end, he will always have the final say. Amen? A, a lot of stuff happened in this gap. Now to our text. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. And here, here's a little map. It helps me to picture things, right? So you have this area of Galilee. You have the, you have the uh, Sea of Galilee down here. A little bit further, you have the uh, Dead Sea. You have Judea over here, Syria over here. Okay? And we know from John's gospel that when Jesus withdrew to Galilee, he actually went through an area called Samaria, which was a surprising route for a rabbi to take because the Jewish people, especially the religious leaders, considered the Samaritan people less than half-breeds and unclean. And in fact, most Jews, when they when, when they traveled to Galilee, would actually cross over the Jordan River to avoid going to Samaria altogether lest they become unclean, but Scripture says that Jesus had to go through Samaria to A, meet a woman at a well, and B, to make a statement about the nature and character of the kingdom he's establishing. To make a statement that his kingdom is for all people, even for this woman at the well who was married five times and was now living with a guy who would not even give her his last name. And Jesus tells this less-than-woman about living water and about never thirsting again. He tells this less-than woman about how God is searching for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And he tells this less-than woman that he is the Messiah. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. And when he first returned to Galilee, he actually stopped off in his hometown of, of Nazareth. And he walked into the synagogue and a scroll was handed to him. The prophet Isaiah, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found this part right here. And Luke 4, 18 and 19 says, here's Jesus in the synagogue, his hometown. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the Lord, year of the Lord's favor. And then he handed the scroll back to the attendant. And he sat back down, and every eye on the synagogue was on him. And Jesus said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the people were like, but hey, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't that the kid I had in my synagogue class 20 years ago? Jesus did some more teaching, and when Jesus began to talk about how God reaches out the Gentiles, they became so furious, they drove Jesus out of town, intending to throw him over a cliff, and Luke writes this, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali. Now, Capernaum was a, it was a busy beach town, a population of about 2,000, 50% which were Gentiles, had a thriving fishing business, it was located on an international trade route that Stretch all the way down into Egypt in the south and all the way up to Syria and Mesopotamia in the north. It was the hometown of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. It's where Matthew had his tax business. And it was a good distance away from all the religious leaders in Judea who would do anything to shut down the truth. You see, Capernaum was a perfect place for Jesus to set up his ministry headquarters. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. And this is the fifth time so far in Matthew's Gospel where he connects something that Jesus has done with an Old Testament prophecy underscoring, hey, Jesus is the one you've been looking for all these years. And here's the prophecy that Jesus fulfilled when he moved to Capernaum. It's from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. A little later in Isaiah 9, Isaiah will tell us that this light would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, and that He will reign with righteousness and justice on David's throne forever. First, we see here that we see their physical location. The people were living where? They were living in the land of Zebulon and Naphtali. But Isaiah also gives us not just their physical location, but he gives us their spiritual condition. They were living in darkness. They were living in the shadow of death. Now, now why would the words living in darkness apply to the people living in Galilee? For several reasons. That area up here, they were the first to turn away from God and worship false idols when Solomon died. And when Assyria came in and conquered the northern kingdom, what they did was they, they exported a lot of Jews, imported a lot of other nations who worship false gods, and over the centuries there had been a lot of intermarriage going on. And so this area was an area that had suffered greatly in war and had slid spiritually far from God. It's something I found interesting in my studies this week is that the, the word that's translated, at least in my Bible, as those living in darkness is actually the Greek word for sitting. Where do people sit? Where they're comfortable, right? Where they plan on staying for a while. I remember when I had my office in the front room and people would look in. And if I looked out the window, they thought that meant you could come on in. And, and they would say, I'm not going to take too much of your time. And if they ever did this, I'm like, okay, okay. You don't really mean it because you're sitting down, right? You're sitting down and you're planning on staying, right? So people sit down where they're comfortable. I hope that wasn't you. I wasn't being offensive there. But people sit down where they're comfortable, where they plan on staying. And the people there had been comfortable in their darkness. And that describes many people in the world today, right? They're sitting in darkness. They are very comfortable living in their immorality, And they plan on staying there for a while. Jesus said in John 3, this is a verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. You see, Jesus goes to a place where people are sitting in darkness, a place where people are hurting, despised, rejected, and he sets up shop there. Like that becomes his mission field. And again, this speaks to the nature and character of the kingdom that Jesus is establishing. The king and his subjects are to go out into the darkness, amen, right? They're to eat with sinners, they're to shine the light in darkness, they to storm the gates of hell, and the gates of hell will not overcome them. And listen, many times it's often the needy person that's the fastest to recognize that they have a need. John 12, 46, he said, I come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Colossians 1 13, he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. Matthew continues in chapter 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, repentance is a prerequisite for entering the kingdom and, and for following after Jesus. And here's the deal when, when Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near, it's not a threat, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to a change of mind that leads to a change of heart that leads to a change of life that leads to living the life you're created to live. It's not a threat. It's an invitation. And we see here Jesus talking about this prerequisite as he begins his ministry in Matthew 4. We see this prerequisite as he ends his ministry in Luke chapter 24. That he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures That'd be great if you could do that for us. And he told him, This is what is written. The Messiah will, will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, begin at Jerusalem. Begin his ministry, end his ministry, and we see repentance at the forefront when his church was born. Acts 2, verse 37, 38. When the people heard this, that Jesus is the Messiah, that they killed. God's son, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Did God really say you need to repent to be baptized? Yeah, he did. (laughs) Amen? Yeah, he did. Matthew continues, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Now, when you just read this, you think, this is kind of crazy. Like, Like, Jesus just kind of showed up. They never met him before. And they all of a sudden left everything to follow Jesus. No. They've been hanging out with Jesus for about a year. Ever since John the Baptist pointed to Jesus when, this, when, when Peter and Andrew were hanging around and said, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? And, and so what we have here in Matthew 4 is Jesus said, hey, you guys have been hanging out with me for a while. Now it's time for you to go all in. Now it's time for you to follow me. Going on from there, he saw two brothers James, son of Jebedee, and his brother John, they were in the boat with their father preparing their nets. Actually, they were, that word "prepare" actually means a better translation is they were fixing their nets. Why? Because in Luke 5, Luke goes into more detail, and that's when Jesus had them catch a bunch of fish, and they, like, like, Tristan talked about it, like, it about sunk two boats, and so their nets were torn. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. Three-faced ministry, right? Teaching, proclaiming, and healing. Teaching is imparting information. Preaching, K. Russo, is not just imparting information. It's pleading with people to embrace and live out that information. And healing is showing compassion. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Jesus said, follow me. Two simple, yet life-changing words. But what do they mean? How do we know if we're actually following him? There's those questions. I wanted to look at this, this phrase, these two words in reverse order, and talk about the me we're supposed to follow first. See, the identity of the one we're called to follow really makes a big difference. In fact, there are some people who may say, Follow me. However, to do so would not be a very good idea. Have you ever followed the wrong person and ended up somewhere not so good? <laughs> well, uh, a memory popped into my mind, not a song, I'm sorry. But if a song comes up, I'll sing it, you know, because yeah, I know you all love my singing. But when Laurie and I moved from Florida to Georgia, we were there for less than a month at our church, and they had something called a progressive dinner. Pretty cool thing. I don't know if it's old-time thing or not, but what it is is you go to one house, eat salad, go to somewhere else, you eat a main meal, go to another person's house, and you have dessert. We had no idea where anything is. No GPS, you remember, no GPS on our phones, right? And some guy said, follow me. I'll follow you. And it became very apparent that we were lost. And I go, and the guy was falling, pulls off to the side of the road. I could still see him to say, it's like, oh my gosh, it's Fred, the one who can't see, who has glasses that thick. And he was staring at a map in the car. <laughs> it's like, I was like, man, I followed the wrong guy. I shouldn't have followed Fred right? Middle of nowhere. I, I, I can still see that today. Follow me, Steve. I'll show you. No, it didn't work out. <laughs> All right. And, and uh, maybe that's happened to you. So the one who says, follow me, the me really matters. Amen. Because <laughs> uh, some people don't know where they're going. Jesus knows where he's going. And, and so who is the me? And we're called to follow. And, and really in Matthew chapters one through four that we've studied, we see who Jesus is, A powerful picture In chapter 1, we see that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of David, the true and eternal king, that he's the son of Abraham. We see that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. We see that Jesus is Savior. That's Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 2, we see that Jesus is the ruler and shepherd of his people. In Matthew chapter 3, we see that we see God rip open the heavens and say, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. In Matthew chapter 4, we see that Jesus is the second Adam who defeated the devil's temptation. In our text today, we see that Jesus is the light and the hope of the world. Here's the deal. In light of everything we know about Jesus, from the first four chapters of Matthew, we shall feel both the wonder and the weight of the one who gives us the invitation to follow him. Maple Grove, this is Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, the Promised One, the King, God with us, the one that wise men bowed down before, the one whose birth and life are the culmination of generations of prophecy and anticipation. He is the Savior King, He's the righteous judge of the world. He's perfectly filled with God's Spirit, He's the one that God loves, He's the light of the world. Hope of all people and the ruler and shepherd of all mankind. One of the authors of one of my commentaries wrote this. There's only one conclusion to draw when we hear the invitation, follow me. Jesus is worthy of far more than church attendance and casual association. We have such a dangerous tendency to reduce Jesus to a poor puny Savior who's just begging you and I to accept him into our lives as if Jesus needs to be accepted by us. Jesus doesn't need our acceptance. Amen? He's infinitely worthy of all the glory in the whole universe. He doesn't need us at all. We need him. We dare not patronize Jesus, for he's worthy of total abandonment and supreme adoration. We're talking about the Savior, King of the universe, the righteous judge of all nations, God in the flesh, saying, follow me. That alone is mind-boggling. There is no potential casual response to Jesus. It's either turn and run or bow and worship. Amen? I mean, as He's calling us, right? It's not Fred lost somewhere in the back roads of Gennett County, right? It's Jesus, the King, the Savior, the creator of all that we see. Now let's talk about the word follow and follow me. Like the video earlier, following people or being followed by people is at an all-time high. According to my social media accounts, I'm following 293 people on Twitter. 77 people are following me. Instagram, I'm following 153 people, and 198 people are following me. And I don't know who any of those are, and they don't know who I am, right? I did some research and found out, like the top, top three people on Twitter had the most followers. Number one, any guess? President Obama. Number two, the Beeb, Justin Bieber. This is Twitter, number three, it's Katy Perry. Instagram, the number one, you know. Um, and this guy has 490, 409 million followers. He, he's a soccer player, well, a football player, right? Cristiano Ronaldo, anybody heard of him? Okay, soccer people, yeah, all right. Um, and I don't know who this person is, but she has, or what she does, significant, but she has 315 million followers. She's number two. Kylie Jenner, right? I don't know what she does, right? But she has a lot of followers, right? And, and, and following Jesus is, is not like following them, right? But many people who follow Jesus are not a whole lot different, right? I mean, every now and then we may like a tweet or post that Jesus makes, but nothing he says or posts really makes all that much difference in our lives. Now, we read the gospel. We see that Jesus talks a lot about what it means to follow him. We're going to go look at two verses both from Luke, here's what Jesus said, right? And the reason we're doing this series is because Jesus matters, right? And I want us to know who Jesus is. I want you to know who Jesus is and choose whether or not you want to follow him, right? And we want to lift him up in this place. It's about Jesus, right? And and so Jesus says this in Luke chapter 9, then he said to the crowd, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. If you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world and lose or forfeit your very self? And a little further down in Luke, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus said large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, and what we have here is every now and then Jesus he has this large crowd. He wants to know, hey, who is actually following me and who's just hanging out with me? Who's just traveling with me? There's a difference, right? And it's okay to travel with Jesus. I mean, the disciples traveled with him for about a year before they got really serious, and that's okay. But every now and then, Jesus is going to say, "Hey, you know what? It's time to find out if you're really following after me." And here's what he said to this large crowd: If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Well, that's one way to thin out a crowd, right? (laughs) Who's traveling and who's following, right? If you want to follow me, you got to hate your family. That doesn't seem like a very good membership recruitment approach, does it? I mean, if the local gym wants to get new members, that's not the language they use, right? They send out ads and billboards telling you, hey, here is how you're going to benefit coming to my gym. They try to sell you on it. Jesus is not doing that. He's not saying, come to me and I'll make everything all rosy and pretty, butterflies and rainbows. No. Instead, he says, follow me and die. Follow me and hate your family. Now, why does he lose that language? I mean, obviously, if you take it literally, he's not, it, it contradicts other scriptures, right? But what he's saying is, some, some translate it as, you have to love Jesus more than. In other words, Jesus is first and everyone else is a distant second. But, I understand, the, the, the people in that crowd that day in the first century, they knew that following Jesus many times meant that their family would disown them, they'd lose their jobs, lose their livelihoods. And I was reading this week about churches in Southeast Asia where there's a lot of persecution and what the pastors and leaders did there, they came up with a list of questions to ask people, say, hey, we want you to know what you're getting into. what you're signing up for before you decide to follow Jesus. And here's the questions that they have. They ask people, are you willing to leave your home and lose the blessing of your family? Are you willing to lose your job? Are you willing to forgive those who persecute you and share the love of Christ with them? Are you willing to give an offering for the Lord? Are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Are you willing to go to prison? Are you willing... They die for Jesus. And those are the questions. So they say, so you still want to sign up? They just want to be fair. i to be honest. Say, look, this is, this is what it could cost you. And listen, as Jesus followers, we need to understand that following Jesus, though we may never face some of those things, still should cost us something. Like what has following Jesus cost you? I mean, really think about that in your mind right now. Just think about what does it cost you? What does it cost me? And is there a a cost that Jesus is still waiting for you to accept and pay? That you just right now, I'm not sure I want to pay that. Question. Is this conversation making anyone else uncomfortable besides me? Good. Because what if all of life comes down to this one question? Am I a follower of Jesus? What if there really is a heaven and there really is a hell? And where people will spend eternity comes down to this one question. Am I a follower of Christ? Not am I a fan, not am I a traveler with, not am I an admirer of, not do I attend church, not do I have three Bibles and a fish magnet on the back of my car, but am I a follower of Jesus? The truth is, all of life does come down to that. All of eternity comes down to that. Amen? I mean, that's true. I want to say three things about following Jesus that are awesome and transforming. First, following Jesus is an open invitation. Anyone. If anyone would come after me, I love it. It's an all-inclusive invitation. He doesn't begin with a list of prerequisites. Well, you got to do this. No, anyone. Sexual past? Anyone. Alcoholic? Anyone. Addict? Anyone. Anger, pride, and lust issues? Anyone. Recently divorced? Anyone. Fearful and insecure? Anyone. Hypocrite? Anyone. Republican? Democrat? Anyone. Yankee fan? New York Giant fan? Anyone, right? Next fallen Jesus a passionate pursuit. He says, come after me. That term, come after, was a phrase commonly used in the context of a romantic relationship. When Jesus says, come after me, describes a passionate pursuit of someone that you love. So the best way to understand what Jesus is wanting from us as followers is to compare it to how we would pursue someone with whom we wanted to have a romantic relationship with. And I get that. Like in the fall of 1996, I went after, I pursued with great passion someone I wanted to have a romantic relationship with. Three months later, she was my wife, right? Boom, right? And that word come after, by the way, is in the present tense, which means we keep pursuing Jesus. And husbands, if you're married, just because you actually put the ring on her finger, I hope you're still pursuing with great passion your wife. Amen? Come on, ladies, give me an amen. All right. Next fall in Jesus is total surrender. Dying to and denying ourselves. And that's tough in our American culture, isn't it? It's tough in the American church. For many will say, now hold on there, preacher man. <laughs> I just sign up for that self-denial thing. I signed up for that make it all about and make it all better for me thing. I, I-, I come to church, have my needs met. If you don't meet my needs, you know what? I'll go down the road and have someone else meet my needs. And really, that's one of the main reasons sometimes people leave churches, right? I was trying to think of an example where someone left the church, and I've been a pastor for, for years, thousands of people have left churches I'm at, right? Thousands, millions, like fleeing, right? Refugees from Steve, whatever. But here's the deal. But here's the deal. <laughs> here, here's the deal. I've, no one's ever come to me and said, hey, Steve, I'm leaving the church you're at because I think I can better meet the needs of other people over here. Not once. That would be a beautiful thing, right? Hey, you know what? There's somewhere where I can serve that really needs my talents and abilities, and I'm going there. Check out this quote from Bo Chansey in I'm Going to Light Myself on Fire. This is good. Really listen. Following Jesus is an all or nothing deal. There's no such thing as partial surrender. In order to follow him, we must completely lay down our lives. We do not get to pick and choose what we hold on to and what we give up. Total surrender is the only option. Take a moment to examine your life. Who's in charge? Who's calling the shots? Who is the director of your life? Is it you? Or is it Jesus? It can't be both. If you answer both you and Jesus, and total surrender has not occurred. Jesus will not stand for it. He will not share his throne. Call him selfish if you like, but that's just the way it is. Jesus desires you and He's not willing to share you with anyone including yourself. Total surrender is an outlandish, extreme is outlandishly extreme that produces discomfort the most. We may believe or accept that concept on a cognitive level, but in our hearts, most of us are holding on to hope that there will be a little wiggle room on the deal. We may desire the appearance of surrender, but we cruelly know who's in control. This is not one of the fuzzy, hard to interpret theological ideals. It's clear cut. Total surrender and nothing less is required. Nowhere in scripture do we see Jesus backing off this. Jesus wants all of you. He wants your hopes, your dreams, your goals, your plans, your agenda, your lifestyle, your families, your relationship, your jobs, your service, your hobbies, your gifts, your talents, your money, your abilities, your passion. The list goes on. He purchased you, he purchased you, and the price was significant. I love this last line. Jesus is not negotiating the deal with you. His final offer is on the table. Amen? Amen. I, don't, I don't know whether they say mic drop or ouch. But dying to yourself may mean signing up to serve in the children's ministry at the Grove or somewhere else using the talents and abilities God gave you to make this church stronger. It may mean reworking your budget so that God gets the first fruits of your income as he requires. It may mean forgiving the person who hurt you without getting anything in return. It may may mean loving someone who's not been kind to you. Dying to yourself may mean taking a risk and going to lunch with a friend and working Jesus Christ into the conversation because you care about where they will spend eternity. It may be speaking publicly about something that is morally wrong even though like with JTB, you know it may cost you everything. It may be going on vacation, it may be giving up your vacation time and money to go on a mission trip, like some are doing to go to Mexico. There's a meeting after church. The Holy Spirit saying you should go, maybe you should go. It may mean volunteering somewhere in the community to make Jesus known. I understand following Jesus like the crowds cost you nothing. They were there for the party, they were there for the food, they were there for the healing, they were there for the excitement. But following Jesus, like a disciple, will cost us greatly. Amen? Following Jesus is an open invitation, a passion, a pursuit, and a total surrender. Okay? We're about to wrap up, but you need to listen. I'm going to talk about why following Jesus is worth it. Because no one is who Jesus is. Jesus is God the Son. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the creator of all that we see, this beautiful weather. He created that. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. And he's always there. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the Christ. He's our Savior. He's our Redeemer. He's our Deliverer. He's the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the Ruler and Shepherd of his people. He's the hope and light of this world. He was and is and he always will be. No one is who Jesus is and no one has done what Jesus has done. Jesus has cleaned up our past. Jesus paid a debt. He did not owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. Maple Grove, in Christ we are free and we are forgiven. In Christ we are free and we are forgiven. Amen! Oh, we're free and forgiven. Oh, what's for lunch? Oh, really? Oh, I'm free and forgiven. Yeah, I heard that before. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Jesus has guaranteed our future in a forever, right? Without pain, forever without disease, sorrow, death, divorce, wars, refugees, conflict, disappointment, failure. And Jesus has filled our today with his presence. No one is who Jesus is. No one has done what Jesus has done and no one can do what Jesus can do. He can do anything. Amen? Like nothing's impossible for him. Jesus can deliver what he promised. He can bring peace any conflict. He can conquer any problem. He can calm any storm. He can defeat any enemy. He can move any mountain. He can part any sea. He can restore what is broken. He can bring life to what is dead. He can heal our hurts. He can take us home to the Father. No one can do what Jesus can do. No one has done what Jesus has done. No one is who Jesus is. And no mission can accomplish what his mission can change lives and hearts, redirect, redirect people's forever. Give hope to the hopeless, belonging to the lonely, freedom to the captives, forgiveness to the lost, peace to the troubled, purpose to the drifting. No mission can accomplish what his can. And what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, he's still doing today through his followers. I tell you the truth anyone who believes in me will do the same works I've done, and even greater works. John 14, 6, because I am going to be with the Father. And when I go to be with the Father, I will send my Spirit, I will send the Spirit to empower my followers. It's hard, it's difficult. And it's worth it. Towards the end of Jesus' ministry, in Matthew 19, uh, Peter asked Jesus a question. He says, we have left everything to follow you. What would there be for us? And he said this, I tell you the truth, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in this age, in the age to come, eternal life. My goal today was to teach some information, but also to preach and to plead with you that the best thing you can do for your life is to follow after Jesus. Amen? Amen. If you're here today, and you never made that decision. You never repented and be baptized. And yes, the Bible does say, repent and be baptized for the mission of sins, right? It does say that. I did not make that up. Did God really say? Yeah, he did. It's right there. You can make that decision today. You can talk about me this week and if you've been someone who's just kind of been hanging out with Jesus you know you're you, you think it's Jesus okay with partial it's like being partially pregnant right right you either are or you aren't well I'm 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 kind of pregnant no you either are or you're not and you're either following Jesus okay I don't know why I brought that up <laughs> forget I said that we ain't talking born again there you go no but you know you know we, we like the straddle the fence and right now, we're going to sing a song kind of available, right? And this is really important, right? Because people follow after Jesus become fishers of men, right? You don't make yourself a fisherman. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you. We follow him, and if we ain't fishing for men, then guess what? We probably aren't what? We probably aren't following him, right? It's just right. simple, simple math, right? He's going to make us fishers of men. So I encourage you, we sing the song. If, if you just kind of on the edges thinking, Jesus, okay, with you just hang, hanging out wherever you want to, Liking a tweet or post every now and then they he puts up there and not really dying to yourself, he's not okay with that. There's only one deal on the table, all right? So just examine where you are and and as we sing the song, uh, would you guys stand with me? God, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity to be in your house. God, I thank you for those in this room. God, I thank you that they leaned into your word this morning. And God, thank you that someone like you the sovereign king of the universe, the one, true, and only God who wants us to be on His team is amazing. And God, I pray that we're available to you so that we can shine your light in the, this world's darkness. In Jesus' name, amen.